Pam Todd coming to you from the Sports and Spirituality Library here in Verona, Wisconsin. And I'm going on to uh, part three. This wonderful, wonderful book who I've enjoyed very much reading is the uh, Experience, Strength, and Hope book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's the first three editions of Alcoholics Anonymous that were pulled from the big book. And they ended up right over here in this book called Experience, Strength, and Hope. And when it comes it's a collection of stories offers back to the AA Fellowship the experience of the 56 members whose stories are no longer available in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. So they put them in here. And I'm glad they did because it's a wonderful, wonderful book. And, and I, you know, it's, it's helped me out a lot too, just reading this stuff. Because sometimes I was pretty much, uh, I was pretty much, my toolbox was pretty empty when I came in here. And uh, it got to be pretty empty too when I was, when I was supposed to be doing what I was supposed to be doing. I wasn't doing what I was doing. It didn't work out that way. So, let's go on to part three. This is a 2003 copyright. And the stories in this section were deleted from third edition when the fourth was published in 2001. But 13 of the 25 were published in the second edition and reflect AA in the 50s. The quarter of century between the publication of the third and fourth edition, AA and the surrounding society experienced phenomenal changes. AA's estimated membership had doubled to two million or more. And there were more than 100,000 groups meeting in approximately 150 countries. Numbers were only part of the story as alcoholics of every walk of life and nuance of lifestyle or belief heard the message and achieved sobriety. The influx of women, the influx of women and young people continued, and more than half of the new members were teaching AA with help of the professional. The fellowship was carrying the message to physically challenged alcoholics and welcoming people who thought, or people who met earlier have been too afraid of a negative stigma to seek the help they needed. And as the computer age took hold, alcoholics were able to communicate in new ways with online meetings available not only from home, homebound members but also for those who wanted to share their experience with AA friends. They might never meet face to face. In view of such complexity within the fellowship, the process of de developing a fourth edition was destined to be most comprehensive of all. The basic criteria for story selection, repeated Bill W's insistence, on AA experience, strength, and hope. A subcommittee of the trustees literature committee received more than 1,200 manuscripts in response to their initial request. 
Through a painstaking process of review, narrowed these down to 25 new stories in the final product. With 17 keepers from the third edition, their final selection reflected the full range of racial, ethnic, gender, religious, age, occupational, and lifestyle experiences that are woven into the rich tapestry, tapestry of AA life. At the same time, the community had the difficult responsibility of eliminating old materials to make room for the new. October-November 2001 issue of Box 459 asked, How is it possible to select the best when dealing with AA sharing? The subcommittee of the Trustees Literature Committee, charged with the responsibility of developing the fourth edition, would answer that question quite simply. It is not. There is no such thing as best. Yet choices had to be made, not only in selecting new material, but also in deciding whose story, whose stories to retain from the third edition, which to leave out. And developing guidelines of the subcommittee was mindful of Bill W.'s observation that audience for the book is people who are coming to Alcoholics Anonymous now. Those who are here have already heard our stories. After lengthy, after lengthy consideration, the committee eliminated the stories you are about to read. As a historical record, they are invaluable, but their primary value is that of simple AA sharing one alcoholic talking to another in the language of the heart. Wow. Well, this last sentence, let me read it again. But their primary value is that of simple AA sharing. One alcoholic talking to another in the language of the heart. What a beautiful, what a beautiful way to say that. That's the thing that I've noticed, you know, when I talk from the heart, people listen. I want to talk about uh, talk about stuff that just really doesn't matter. Then people have a tendency to listen for a few minutes, and you can just see them zone out. So it's really important for me to uh, realize that. And uh, yeah, they, they, this book's awesome. So let me start reading it. Let me get into this thing a little bit more. Yeah, it be showing. He had to be shown who is convinced against his will is of the same opinion still, but not as this man. I was the oldest of three children, and my father was an alcoholic. One of the earliest memories that I have is of a bottle sitting on the desk with a skull and crossbones marked poison. That time, as I remember, he had promised never 
to take another drink. Of course he did. I can also remember that he was a salesman and a very good one. When he was, he was uptown. We were living in the middle town of Moscow. I went up to my, I went up to try to get more money from him to buy groceries. He wouldn't give me any money for the groceries, but he did take me across the street and buy me a bag of candy, which I later took back and traded for a loaf of bread. I was not more than six at that time. My father died in 1901 when I was eight years old and I was in second or third grade at school. I immediately quit school, went to work. And from that time until I was in high school age, there was never a great, never great things that I was going to do. And in fact, I accomplished about 50% of them, then lost interest. That continued through my entire life. When I was 16 years old, my mother remarried and I was given the opportunity of going back to school. This story appeared to first edition as the car smasher. It was completely rewritten, rewritten for the second edition until the title he had to be shown. So, all right. I went. My little problem here. Alright, here we go. I went into the high school grades, but having missed all the intermediate grades, I didn't get along too well. So I developed the habit of going back to school just long enough for the football season and then quitting. There was a tremendous drive and ambient ambi tremendous drive and ambition to become a great guy. Because I think I recognized inwardly that I didn't have any special talents. And compared to the early age, I can remember having, I remember being jealous of my brother. He did things much better than I did because he applied himself and learned how to do them. And I never applied myself. Whether I could have done as well as he, I don't know. I was married at the age of 19 to a grand girl and had good business prospects. I had bought a piece of ground in Cuyahoga Falls and cut it into lots and had property. I'm sorry, had a profit of approximately $40,000. That was a lot of money in those days. That property, I, well, that profit, it's not property, it's profit, sorry. I built a number of houses, but then I neglected them. I won't put sufficient time on them. Consequently, my labor bills ran up. I lost money and just and just fooled away a large part of that profit. When I was 18, at the end of the high school, the high school team had a banquet at a well-known roadhouse outside of Akron. We boys drove out in the somebody's car and went to the bar on the way to the dining room, and I, in an effort to impress the entire the other boys that I was city bred, 
having lived in Scranton and Cleveland, asked them if they didn't want to drink. They looked at one another queerly, and finally one of them allowed he'd have a beer, and they all followed him. Each of them meant saying he'd have a beer too. I ordered a martini, extra dry. I didn't even know what a martini looks like. But I had heard a man down at the bar order one. That was my first drink. I kept watching. I kept watching the man down the bars to see what he did with a contraption like that. And he just smelled the belt and he just smelled of his drink. And set it down again. So I did the same. He took a couple puffs of a cigarette. I took a couple puffs of my cigarette. He tossed off half of his martini. I tossed off half of mine. And it nearly blew the top of my head off. It irritated my nostrils. I choked. I didn't like it. There was nothing about that drink that I liked. But I watched him and he tossed off the rest of his. I tossed off the rest of mine. He ate his olive and I ate mine. I didn't even like the olive. It was repulsive to me from every standpoint. That drink nine martinis in less than an hour. Wow. Okay. So anyways, I'm going on here. 22 years later, Dr. Bob told me that what I had done was like turning a switch and setting up a demand for more alcohol in my system. I didn't know that then, but I had no more reason to drink those martinis than the jackrabbit. And at a particular time, the boys put me on a shutter and took me out to the shed, and I lay in the car while they enjoyed their banquet. That was the first time I ever drank hard liquor. Blackout drinking at once. I had no pleasure out of the drinking at all. All of a sudden I found myself guzzling. Right then I determined that never so long as I lived would I have anything more to do with martinis. They acted on me like the beating of a club. I think it was probably more than a year before I had anything more to do with liquor. I was opening up these lots that I spoke of. I had a crew of men working there. I wanted them to work on Sunday afternoon so that I could sell lots on Sunday. I went over and I bought a jug of hard cider, gallon of wine that I gave these fellows to drink. When they got through the day's work, part was left. What I proceeded to drink. During the day, looking over the contracts, contracts and money in my pocket, I found that I had sold six lots that I couldn't even remember. <laughs> oh, no. And didn't even know the people I had sold them to. I had to look in the, look in the telephone book later to find out who these people were. Another blackout. Wine and hard cider. I really didn't... I early discovered that I drank anything. I was not accountable for what happened. I decided that I couldn't drink. Anyhow, I recognized the fact that I couldn't drink like normal people. But I tried hard and kept on trying for 22 years. I sold three lots to an elderly lady in Cleveland. I came to Cleveland with the digs to those lots and to pick up my money. She paid in cash. Next morning, I woke up in jail in Cleveland, and the jailer had 
$1,175 of my money in an envelope. I can't remember anything that happened. This was six or eight months after the drinking last drinking episode. Then I got married. As I've said, I was 19. I felt that felt having gotten married, I was an adult, and one of the first things I did was to buy two cases of whiskey with no idea of drinking it. I might say right here that never in my life did I ever intend to get drunk. I never had any desire to get drunk. So I constantly thought I was a very young married man having his whiskey in the cup in the cupboard over the sink. When I helped my wife with the dishes at night, I would take a cup of tea and spike it with whiskey. I could get through an evening with just a couple of snorts. This was a regular occurrence for my, a little while. Eventually, there would be a ball game or a show of some sort of special occasion to celebrate, and I would turn up drunk. About that period, too, came increasing procrastination and the avoidance of responsibility. Responsibilities. I would put off doing anything that I could until the next day, and consequently, everything would pile up and then there would be the blackout. The end of the selling of lots just prior to World War I, I got into crude rubber business, and six months later, there was only one broker myself left in Akron. So in spite of anything that I might do, I prospered being one of the only two brokers in the rubber center of the world. So, what's going on here? This man's amazing, because obviously he's a good businessman. And, uh, you know, he's got a, he's got a great mind. The only problem is, is he goes into his sprees, what he's talking about. And... Blacking out. Holy smokes. Not knowing what he did for business that day. Waking up with $1,175 in his envelope that the jailer had given back to him, which is very nice of him. And, uh, you know, like I said before, he's selling lots. He didn't even know what the hell he's selling. He had to look up, the, he had to look up their names in the phone book. So, I'm going to go on, but man, we are so blessed in this program. So blessed to be in a good relationship with with our higher power and uh, be taking, be going, moving forward. So... At the end of selling lots, just prior to World War One, I, I got into crude rubber business. I'm just rereading. And six months later, there was only one broker and myself left in Akron. So in spite of everything, so in spite of anything that I might do, I prospered. Being one of only two brokers in the rubber center of the world. 
I found, however, that I would leave Akron to go to Chicago. I would get drunk as long as there was everyday business. I could drink occasionally and didn't always get drunk. I was a periodic, a big event of any kind that precipitated heavy drinking. It had long since become a serious problem. I was prone to do everything on a big scale. I can well remember sitting with $7 in my pocket, planning on giving my husband a 100 or $200 when I made it next year. I didn't go to a, I didn't go to do a thing about giving them any part of my 7 bucks I had in my pocket. The rubber prosperity went on for about 6 years, 1916 to 1922. It fell apart in the 20s. Every company in in the country, except Firestone, was reorganizing at that time. I was able to skate along the fringe of big money. I made a point of knowing important people. I could work. I could work a deal up to where I had to do was to go ahead with it. All the planning had been done. All the fin- financing had been done. But then I'd say nuts to it, and I'd walk away. Near success. Only near. I figured the only difference between me and a millionaire was that I had the strength, or that he got the brakes and I didn't. Akron was really on a boom in those days. 1919-1920. Expansion was terrific. I optioned a piece of land just off East Market Street to put up a 300-suite apartment. 100 for unmarried women at one end, 100 for men at the other, and 100 for the married couples in the middle. In the basement were to be dry cleaning facilities, a barber shop, a pool room, grocery shop, and everything I had contracted for half of it, at least verbally. And the contractors were taking half of the... Uh, second mortgage bond. At that particular stage, I lost interest in it, sold the option for $5,000 and forgot the whole deal. Another time I had a rubber pool project. My idea was to have all the companies pools, all of them pool their hand funds and buy rubber when rubber was cheap and then put it in a pool. When rubber reached a certain low point, they would draw on the rubber out of the pool and buy with the biggest companies and with the amount of money we, we could have gotten and the promises I had, it could have been done. I worked long. I worked along until I had really big names in rubber on a tentative contract and then I neglected to go through with it. To my mind, drinking didn't have anything to do with not going through with things. I don't know whether I drank to cover up being a failure or whether I drank and then missed the deals. I was able to rationalize it anyway. I can well remember over a long period of years when I thought I was the only person in the world who knew that sooner or later I was going to get drunk. I can remember occasions when friends recommended me for positions or business opportunities that I wouldn't take because I felt that at some future date, 
I'd get drunk and they wouldn't be hurt. In the meantime, the domestic situation was not getting along too well. We all had we had two children, a boy and a girl. <clears throat> when the boy was about twelve, we broke up the marriage. That was at my suggestion. <clears throat> I can remember telling the, the one poor lady so that I couldn't that I could drink probably quit drinking, but I wasn't married to her and told her that after all, I didn't like restraint. I didn't like having to come home at a certain time. I didn't like this. I didn't like that. I think the poor girl actually divorced me to help me stop drinking naturally. When a little restraint, with a little restraint, little restraint, I had exercise before was gone now, and my drinking became worse. Long since I had come to believe I was insane because I did so many things I didn't want to do. I didn't want to neglect my children. I loved them. I think as much as any parent. But I did neglect them. I didn't want to get into fights, but I got into fights. I didn't want to get arrested, but I got arrested. I didn't want to jeopardize the lives of innocent people. My by driving in an automobile when I was intoxicated. But I did. I quite naturally came to the conclusion that I must be insane. My big job was to keep other people from finding it out. I can remember well thinking that I would quit drinking, really go to work hard, apply myself eight hours a day, five days a week. Make a whole lot of money, and then I could start drinking again. That was the reverse of my former pattern about fearing to go to work because I might get drunk. Always at the end of those dreams was drinking. Now I attempted to quit. I think this was about 1927. I was divorced in 25 or 26. I determined that I couldn't drink. I remember one occasion when I did not drink for 364 days, but I didn't quite make a year. Another time I had gone around to Maxar trying to get a job driving one of his trucks. He had shown something of my drinking pattern and he asked me what I was doing about it. I told him that I had not had a drink for 90 days that I had come to the conclusion that I was one of those individuals who couldn't drink. So knowing that, I had determined that so long as I lived, I would never take another drink. On that statement and that fact that I had been sober for 90 days, he gave me a job to tell him, he gave me a job selling lots and an allotment he had. I was moved in as sales manager and had four men working underneath me. At the end of about four months, I not only had good-looking clothes, and I might say that at the time. I first talked to Max, I didn't have a suit of clothes. I could bend over in a real sudden. Now I had six suits of clothes.
and I had an automobile, everything in the world a man could possibly want. And I was driving from Akron to Cleveland, having just been to the bank and discovered that I had approximately $5,000. That's a lot of money in 1920. I drove towards Cleveland wondering why I found myself in such a in such a changed set of uh, conditions as compared with those six months before. I came to the conclusion it was because I hadn't been hadn't been drunk. And I hadn't been drunk because I hadn't seen I hadn't taken a drink. And I then there said a prayer, if you please. An offer of appreciation for not having had a drink for those few months and then more. And there. And then there. Then and there. About anybody without anybody promising me anything or threatening me. I made a solemn vow that never, so long as I lived, I would take another drink. Well, good stuff. Good movie. Good book. I'm sorry, good book. What am I talking about? <laughs> All right. My mother and father were Catholic, and I had been baptized, but at the end of my instructions for confirmation, I had not gone to church. Then when my mom remarried, she married a Protestant. And the whole religious angle was forgotten. So I had never had any lasting contact with any kind of religion. I was driving to Cleveland when I made this solemn promise never to drink again. That was at 3.30 in the afternoon. At 3.30, the next morning, I was in Champion Street Station in jail for driving while intoxicated. And insulting an officer and the suit of which I was so proud was in great sh- was in such great shape that turnkey had to get me a pair of trousers to go into court in the next morning. I had run into a man I always drank with. Whenever we, whenever this man and I met, I didn't know his name. Then, nor I do I know it now. We would always get drunk. I had run into him, and he looked real prosperous. His face and eyes looked clear, and he started to compliment me on my good front and how well I looked. And I said, I haven't had a drink for nine months. He said, well, I haven't had a drink for three months. And we stood there for 20 minutes telling each other how much better we were, how much better we looked, how much better we were financially, mentally, Physically, morally, and in every way, shape and manner. And then we both realized we should go. We shook hands, and he hung on to my hand for a moment and said, Tell you what I'll do for old time's sake. I'll buy you a drink, and if you suggest another one, I'll poke you right in the nose. And I think we calculated or I did, that there wasn't anybody who knew me. I wasn't drinking. I could take one drink and get it right back on the wagon. Nobody would know of it. 
So I agreed. So to have one drink. We went into the bootleg joint and don't remember having, don't remember leaving that place. I was picked up at 2.30 in the morning with my car smashed up by a streetcar because I had run into a big concrete safety zone and a streetcar had run into me. They took me out through the roof. That's where I lost the suit. And I lost $100 I had in my pocket. And a wristwatch, too. I lost the car, of course. But more important, I lost my sobriety. I continued to drink on and off then until every dollar I had in the world was gone again. I was right back living at my sister's, getting my cigarettes by calling her grocer and telling him to put in a couple of cartons with their order, exactly as I had been before I started to work at Max's. 1932, some friends of mine advised me that I might try Christian Science, which had done a lot of some of their friends. I started to investigate science through some friends of mine who were readers in church. I accepted that in their help. It was helpful. I quit drinking immediately. The circumstances under which I reached these people were very odd because I was led right th- I was that there through things that I said when I couldn't even remember speaking. I told somebody that I was going down to get Christian science and they took me down but I don't remember saying that. Yet I wound up at the place. I attended their meetings every Sunday and Wednesday for about nine months. If there was a lecture on the subject within a hundred miles of Akron, I attended. Then I started to miss meetings because it was raining or snowing or something else. Pretty soon I wasn't going at all and was avoiding those people because, avoiding those people who had been so kind to me. I avoided them rather than explain why they weren't seeing me. My sobriety continued for six months. At the end of 15 months, I tried the beer experiment. After drinking one glass of beer at the end of my work period for about five days, I thought, I thought I'd better find out whether I really had the stuff tricked. So I didn't have a beer one night, and as I drove home, I was breaking my arm, putting myself on the, patting myself on the back because I had proved I couldn't lick liquor. I couldn't lick liquor. I had proved that liquor was not my, was not my master. I had avoided a drink this time. So I having licked it, there was no reason why I shouldn't have a drink. And I stopped in there before I got home and had one. Then I got into the habit of having beers. Decided that a drink of whiskey was not any worse. So I would get to one drink of whiskey. But on second thought, I decided that as long as I was only going to have one, I might as well make it a double header. So I had one, one double header every night for about two or three weeks. I didn't drink very long at a time. <laughs> 
But I think the longest drunk I had was ever on was 11 days. But usually two days with a complete blackout for a day and I'm backing off by drinking as long as I could get anything. This Christian science experience with his sobriety of 15 months was in 1932. Then I started drinking again with possibly a little more, a little bit more restaurant. I'm sorry, a little more restraint. Periods a bit longer than they had been before, but substantially the same pattern. During the latter part, I was during the latter part of the Christian Science experience. I had gotten a job and was working at Firestone. I was bouncing along, not doing too badly. There were times when I got to drinking, but I had been warned by Firestone that they would stand for this. They wouldn't stand for this much longer. So clearly, they were conscious of the fact that I drank too much and too often. To show you the point to which the observation went, there came an occasion when I had spent. A most delightful weekend, and nine o'clock on Sunday night, I was on my way home, and I thought I would get drunk. Went into the bar. There I got into a fight. I was arrested, taken to jail, where I was beaten up by two or three of those fellows who were already in, already in there, and whom I tried to boss. I was badly beaten. I tried to conduct a kangaroo court and hit them with a broomstick. I had a broken nose, a fractured cheekbone, and a black, it was black from the lower point of my face up into my hair. I was black and blue with my lips all swollen. When they roused up to go into court in the morning, I looked so terrible in the court that the judge suggested that I get a continuance and let and let me sign all the papers to go to the hospital and to a doctor. I went downstairs and there was that grisly old veteran police officer in charge of the property desk. As he gave me the stuff he asked, Are you going out into the streets that way? I said I'm certainly not going to stay in here. I had white trousers on, white shoes, and a white shirt, and that was streaked with blood. He said, Well, why don't you take a cab? I said, All right, call me a cab as though I was talking to a bellboy. He did call me a cab, and when I got into the cab, I said, Drive into the liquor store. We drove to a store in North Hill and I sent him in with what money I had to get a quart. He brought me the quart out and I took a good swig. When I got home, I had to give him a check for the taxi fare. I drank some more and slept through the day. At night, I woke up and the folks with whom I roomed with were by then, were home by then. I offered them a drink. And they came home, and they came to the bottom of my stairs, and 
I snuck my face around the top of the stairs and, and a good woman fainted. Just looking at me. They decided that I should have a doctor. They called their doctor and it happened that they called they called one I knew. He came in and took a look at me and sent me to the hospital. When I had been in the hospital for 10 days, Sister Ignatia has played a, such a part in my development of AA in this area. Stuck her head in the door one night. Stuck her head in the door one morning and announced, looking at me quizzically, that they might be able to make something human out of my face after all. And at the end of 14 days, they let me out. Three days later, I went to work. Next day, they called me in for an examination. And the doctor wouldn't let me continue working at and pardon me from the plant for 10 days because he had my eye had been injured. So I was hated. I barred from the plant for 10 days. During that 10-day period, I was drunk twice, showing how little control these restraints had on, restraints had on me. Shortly after that, my brother, who had been, had, who had then been, become associated with a group of people, had stopped drinking, urged me to attend meetings with him. Naturally, I wanted no part of that meeting. I explained in my, to my sister that some of the people he was going to the meeting with had been in the hospitals. I couldn't afford to be found with, the, with these people. But I said I would certainly pay his dues if it would keep him from, shake, from drinking. But me? I wanted no part of it. I didn't want to have anything. I didn't want to have any need of such an association. Yeah, that's what we usually find. It's just, you know, we'll help somebody else, but we won't help ourselves. I mean, we... We see this guy continuously getting his butt kicked. You know, he's not doing anything about it. All right. Shortly after that, my brother who had become associated with a group of people and had stopped drinking, urged me to attend meetings with him. Naturally, I wanted no part. Naturally, I wanted no part. And I explained to my sister that some of the people he, some of the people he was meeting with had been in hospitals. I couldn't afford to be found with these people. But I said I would certainly pay his dues if it would keep him from drinking. But me, I wanted no part of it. I didn't have any need of such an association. 
One morning, after I had been on a binge for a couple days, I awoke to find my brother and Dr. Bob in my room talking to me about not drinking. My only thought that day was a getting drunk, or getting a drink, and how to get rid of these clowns was no big pro- was no was my big problem. They asked me if I would take some medicine, and I promised that I would if they got on me a drink. So Paul was dispatched and brought back a pint. I got two drinks each of them. A quarter of that pint in me and was talk was talking along with these people, but I felt that sooner or later they were going to have me cornered because they were because they were smarter than I was, and the drink was beginning to take effect. But as I reached for a third drink, Bob said, "Listen, listen, Buster, you promised to take." Some medicine if we got you a drink. Now, we got you that drink, but you haven't taken the medicine. I agreed with him and told him in no uncertain terms that I never broke my word in my life. I told him I'd take the medicine and I would take it, but that I hadn't told him when and thereupon. I got away with that third drink. I then began asking a lot of questions about both my both my brother and Dr. Bob about how this thing worked. And I suppose I was becoming more glassy-eyed all the time. For eventually I said to Bob, you're all dried up. You're never going to want another drink. Are you? And this answer of this, of his, is very important to those of us who are a victim of alcoholism. He said, "So long as I'm thinking, and I'm thinking now, and so long as I'm doing the things I'm doing now, I don't believe I'll never take another drink." And I said, "Well, what about Paul? Have you got him all dried up?" He said Paul would have to answer for himself. So Paul repeated substantially what Dr. Bob had said. And I said, now you want to dry me up and I'm going to want another drink. Well, the doctor said we have hopes in that direction. I said, in that case, there's no use of wanting this. And I got the first and I got the last of the pint. A few minutes later, Dr. Bob left, leaving with my brother some medicine I should get. I should get. Paul measured the medicine out, but he figured that my track record, that little bit, wouldn't be enough. So he doubled it and added a few drops more and then gave it to me. I immediately became unconscious. <laughs> This was on Thursday. I regained my consciousness on Sunday. I had taken five and a half ounces of peroldehyde because if it, it affected me to the uh, strenuously. They felt that hospitalization was indicated, and I woke in a hospital. Peroldehyde, I think, is still used in detox centers. 
Maybe not, but I think it is. I remember hearing about it done at detox. And, uh, you know, not, I wasn't at detox, but I remember hearing other people, the, the patients. Well, that might be lithium too, so I'm not really sure. Anyways, on Sunday when I came in, on Sunday when I came to, it was a bad, wet, snowy day in February, February 1937. Paul and Doc and a lot of other fellows were in Cleveland on business. The people in the group that hadn't been around for that day, part of my family was in Florida, and the rest of them were speaking to me. So I spent a very handsome, I'm sorry, a very lonesome day. By evening, I was feeling very sorry for myself. It was getting pretty dark, and I hadn't turned on my lights when some big fellow stepped inside the door and flipped on the lights, flipped on the light switch. I said, look, Bob, if I want these lights on, I'll turn them on. I'll never forget, he never, he never even hesitated. And I never said him, never seen him before in my life. He took off his hat, his overcoat, and he said, You don't look very good. How are you feeling? I said, How do you suppose? I'm feeling terrible, he said. I'm feeling terrible. He said, Maybe you're, you need a little drink. That was the smartest man I'd ever met in months. I thought he had it in his pocket, so I said, You got some? He said, No, call the nurse. And he got me, he got me a drink. Then he started to talk to me about his drinking experience, experiences. What his drinking had cost him. How much he had drunk and where things like that and I remember was quite no was quite bored because I had never seen the guy before and had no interest at all in what where and when he drank. The man turned out to be Bill D, a very early member of AA, and I couldn't tell you a word of what he said. Not one experience registered with me. When he left, I realized from his story that as a drinker, I was just a pant, a panty, a panty waste, a pantry waste. I knew I could quit because he had, he had quit. He hadn't had a drink for over a year. The important thing was that he was happy. He was released, relieved from his alcoholism and was happy and contented because of it. And I shall never forget. And I shall never forget the next day. Others from the group came to came to see me. I remember well one fellow, Joe, walking nearly three miles through slush, wet snow, wet and snow to come to the hospital to see a man that he had never seen before in his life. That impressed me very much. He walked to the hospital to save bus fare and did it gladly in order to be helpful to an individual 
he had never even seen. There were only seven or eight people in the group before me. They all visited me during my period in the hospital. The very simple program they advised me to, to help was that I should ask to know God's will for me and for that one day and then to for that one okay yeah uh, and then to the best of my ability to follow that and at night to express my gratefulness to God for the things that had happened to me during the day when I left the hospital I tried this for a day and it worked for a week and it worked, for a month. And it worked. And then for a year, and it still worked. It has continued to work now for nearly 18 years. That is a wonderful story. You know, the guy he's talking about, Bill D, I believe was the, uh, was the guy that's in the picture you see in a lot of these, uh, AA Clubhouse is that they show that Bill and Dr. Bob are leaning over a guy. And I think that's Bill D. And I think Bill D's the one who, uh, who Dr. Bob and Bill got called in to, uh, to talk to because he had, he had, uh, blackened up the eyes of the nurse. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. There's so much in that story. There's so much in there. And, uh, you know the best the best thing too is that's how far people will go for you and drink and, and uh your sobriety to help you be sober. To walk eight miles down freaking slush snow and all that to come and see you. That's how important AA is. And that's how important we are to AA. So, you know, that's we have to think about that and we don't want to go to meetings and stuff like that. And we have all like, all these bullshit excuses. So, anyways, if nobody else has told you they love you today, I do. And I say that with the power of love. Thanks.